Hello, and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Sufert. My guest on today's episode is Mikowai Barchenovich. Mikowai is a law professor and the research director of the Law and Technology Hub at the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom. He has research affiliations with the University of Oxford, where he received his PhD, and the Stanford Law School. Mikowai also writes on technology policy as a senior scholar at the International Center for Law and Economics, a U.S.-based think tank. I invited Mikowai on the podcast after reading a piece he wrote titled GDPR Decision Against Meta Highlights That Privacy Regulators Don't Understand Necessity, which discussed the Irish DPC's recent decision on Meta's use of the contractual basis for collecting and processing data for the purpose of personalized advertising, and which I have linked in the show notes. Mikawai is an expert on EU digital privacy law, and I wanted to bring him on the podcast to discuss the spate of recent decisions at the EU level, but also at the national level in Europe, related to personalized advertising. This conversation is long, it's dense, and I found it fascinating, as Mikawai explains the dynamics of digital privacy law in the EU in illuminating detail. Over the course of this episode, Mikawai and I discuss the Irish DPC's sanctions related to contractual basis, consent as a mechanism for collecting and processing first-party data, the necessity provision as it relates to personalized ads targeting, the French privacy regulator's recent sanctions of Voodoo Games and Apple, and the future of transatlantic data flows. It's difficult for a layman or a non-practitioner to follow and understand developments in the EU privacy law and regulation, and I'm glad that Mika Wai could join the podcast to help elucidate those topics. Please enjoy this conversation with... Mikolai Barchenovich. Mikolai, I am so happy to speak with you today. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. We are going to have, I'm sure, a very interesting discussion on the topic of European data privacy legislation. But before we do that, I would ask you to introduce yourself to the audience in your own words. I'm Mikoy Barachantevich. I'm an academic law professor at the University of Surrey. I'm also a senior scholar at the International Center for Law and Economics, and I work generally on tech law issues and particularly on EU privacy law. Great. And this is just out of curiosity, aside from living in Europe, being from Europe, what triggered your interest in this topic? What, what made you want to pursue that? In general, I, I've always been interested in, in tech even longer than I, I've been interested in law. I used to be a coder. I worked briefly in, in this broader web industry as a web developer in mid-2000s. Uh, and then I went to law school. And so I kept that interest. And uh, now, now I get to teach the legal aspects of the same thing that I knew from a different side before. Oh, fascinating. So you kind of have more hands-on tactical experience in the way these products are built, the way that users interact with them. And I, I think that's probably like a very rare path for people to take. Uh, have you ever met anyone else that has pursued that path? I don't think so. Not that, I mean, there are some people like it, but not too many. Usually lawyers and law academics just have straight legal paths. Um, so at least in Europe, right. maybe a bit different in America. From my experience, most lawyers kind of knew they wanted to be a lawyer from like age eight or whatever, uh, <laughs> and uh, never really strayed from that path. But uh, that's really fascinating. So the reason I reached out to you was that I very much enjoyed an article that you wrote and published last month titled GDPR Decision Against Meta Highlights That Privacy Regulators Don't Understand Necessity. Now, 
the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is because it's not just regulators that don't understand necessity. I don't understand necessity. And I think a lot of people that work in the digital advertising space don't understand necessity. And I thought after reading your very educational piece, I, I would invite you onto the podcast to explain to the digital advertising operator audience that listens to this podcast, what is necessity and why does it impact what they do and why is it increasingly impacting what they do? Excellent. Thanks for having me on. Great. So I will start with the subject of your piece. I should have revisited it right before the uh, the podcast recording, but I'll start with, in any case, Irish the Irish DPC's recent sanction related to contractual basis, right? So that was related to the ads platform, not they had another decision that was related to WhatsApp specifically. But the one I'm talking about here is the Irish DPC fined Facebook, I think it was like a record breaking fine, something like 400 million, 300 something million euros, 400 something million dollars related to their use of the contractual basis for collecting and processing user data for the purposes of ads targeting. But in this case, it was first party data. It was the data that is generated from users' interactions that happen on Facebook, that happen on Instagram. This was the subject of the sanction. And, and I thought this was a very interesting case because, and I'll, I'll ask you to elaborate because I have a kind of like a layman's understanding here, but it was a very interesting case from my perspective for two reasons. One, that the Irish DPC kind of originally disagreed with the notion that, that Facebook was violating you know, privacy law. And then they sort of pushed back on the EDPB um, and the EDPB sort of said, no, you must impose this fine. And I want to get into the, those dynamics too. And the second reason I found this really fascinating was that this was related to first party data. Now, everyone in the digital advertising space has become very familiar with app tracking transparency, Apple's policy, which you know draws a very bright line between first party data and third party data. But in this case, the sanction was over the use of first party data. And I think that's something that not a lot of you know, digital advertising operators or even just kind of big tech companies understand. And so I'd love to, to just, first of all, maybe you could kind of provide a better background on this case than I just did. So here it's in a sense one case, but the Irish Data Protection uh, Commission issued two decisions against uh, Meta Ireland. So one was uh, in, um, in respect to Facebook and one was in respect to Instagram. And, and these decisions are mostly identical, almost paragraph for paragraph, just with some details changed uh, because of the character, different characteristics of the service. But yes, as, as you said, they add up to a 400 million euro fine and also to perhaps a behavioral change on, on Meta's part, which I'm no, not sure if it happened. So because what Meta used to do since 2018, I think, and perhaps still does, was to say that the lawful basis on which they process personal user personal data for personal advertising purposes, uh, that this lawful basis under the GDPR is in contractual necessity. So it stems from the contract between a user of Instagram, between a user of Facebook and Meta. And this decision which the Irish Data Protection Commission was forced uh, to take, says that it was really is unlawful for Meta to rely on that this lawful basis. It doesn't say, strictly speaking, that they cannot do behavioral or personalized advertising at all. It's just that they cannot rely on this particular basis for it. Right. And so for the listeners who aren't 
totally aware of what the GDPR stipulates as being legal bases for collecting and processing data. There are six. And it, it feels like, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like you'd rather use any of the five before you have to go to consent, right? Because once you go to consent, you're going to see some proportion, probably some large proportion of users opt out, right? And so you'd rather, you'd probably rather use any of the other five before you sort of resort to consent. Can you just kind of walk listeners through what those are? I mean, I imagine you probably know them off the top of your head. If you don't, you know, we can edit this out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I imagine you probably do. That's okay. And, and I do have uh, Article 6 GDPR just in front of me. So as you said, we have letters A to F. And the first one, the first lawful basis is consent, as you said. But what we also have is necessity, contractual necessity. We have legitimate interests of the business that's processing the data or some other third party. And I think that these two, contractual necessity and legitimate interests, are the ones that are most attractive for, for several reasons. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail. Then we have some, some other ones which are less likely to be applicable, at least in business cases, because uh, we have necessity to protect vital interests of the data subject or another person or a performance of a task carried by a, in the public interest and complies with a legal obligation. And these cover some uses. And for example, if you have a look at Meta's uh, privacy policy, they, I think, rely on all of them for various things. But for business purposes, you would usually want to rely on necessity or legitimate interests. Got it. And the, so the GDPR, I think, especially from like an American perspective, and but also from like the kind of like litigation, you know, lens, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels inscrutable. It feels inscrutable. You're either an expert or you know nothing, right? Like I've, what I've learned is it's very hard to sort of like dabble and get a high level, valid intellectual grasp of this. You, you either delve totally into it or your grasp is so superficial that it's, it's useless and potentially dangerous, right? So I think there's a couple of things that I would love to have you unpack here just to set the the baseline. And I know that even setting the baseline could probably take up the whole hour and a half, but with some kind of consideration paid to, to timing. So why are we even talking about Ireland? Well, there's a provision in the GDPR because obviously Meta is based in California, right? That's the headquarters. There's a provision in the GDPR called the one-stop shop. And it says, okay, well, what we did with GDPR was we attempted to unify a bunch of privacy regulation across the EU member states. And we want to give companies the ability to just work through one point of contact, one privacy regulator. Well, it so happens that most people have the Irish DPC as their privacy regulator. Why? Because most foreign or non-European headquartered companies set up the EU headquarters in Ireland. Why? Because it's very tax friendly, but also just generally very business friendly, right? And so that's why you see Meta Ireland, Apple Ireland, Amazon Ireland, TikTok Island, and they all, when these issues come up, when the GDPR issues surface, they're dealing with the Irish DPC. Can you just, just talk to me a little bit about the history there and why that's important? So all you said is, is 100% correct. Maybe they also like the weather. I don't know. I hear Dublin can be nice sometimes. Seems, seems uh, unlikely, but sure, maybe. <laughs> but yes, so the GDPR replaced a previous data privacy directive and uh, the directive, one of the problems that the GDPR was meant to address was that there was a perception earlier of complexity, legal uncertainty, 
and administrative costs associated with having this separate system of enforcement of privacy law in in various countries and in the European Union one of the main ideas why we have it is that w- is to promote the single European market to be in some ways like the United States where you can operate mostly across state borders and that's what the EU is meant to provide and the GDPR one uh, the idea was to bring us closer to that but by as you say providing businesses cross border businesses with what the GDPR calls a single interlocutor that there is one authority you can talk to instead of having 27 or or more authorities right and and it's you know ironically the US seems to be with respect to like privacy legislation and data privacy legislation it seems to be abandoning that principle right because now we've got you know whatever i think there's like three new state level data privacy laws that that were that passed the legislative process like this year or something maybe i'm i'm wrong on that number but anyway there's some i think we're approaching double digits of states that have you know their own idiosyncratic i mean they're mostly the same right like the these state level privacy laws they're sort of modeled after gdp and and for the most part they're the same they they tend to differ if i understand correctly with the sanctions that are imposed and the ability to form a class, you know, whatever, to sue somebody. But is, that's my understanding. So, okay, so the, the, the GDPR established one-stop shop. You only have to deal with one privacy regulator. If you're headquartered in the EU, that's wherever you're headquartered. Companies tend to be headquartered in Ireland for a number of reasons. And so that's why when you see these GDPR issues erupt, it's usually the Irish DPC that's at the center of it. So then talk to me about the EDPB, because if I'm totally honest, and maybe this is embarrassing... I had never heard of the EDPB until recently. It, it was not something that I was aware of. And, and I think it came to the fore with this case specifically. Can you talk to me about the dynamic between the EU state level privacy regulators and the EDPB? Because it, and maybe about how a state level privacy regulator gets to determine whether the GDPR was violated or not, and then what kind of sanction to impose or not. Right. So the EDPB, that's the European Data Protection Board, you can't think of it as, as being the boss of the national data protection authorities or DPAs. It's, it's more like, uh, like an organization with a role to coordinate the co- cooperation between domestic national data protection authorities. And what all, we, all that we said about the one-stop shop principle is true, but what we also uh, should note is that there are exceptions to it. And so, for example, when you have uh, Meta Ireland, well, domiciled in Ireland, they still, when they do business in uh, various uh, member states, there may be um, ways for domestic national authorities in those states to take action in respect to what Meta is doing. There is a special urgency procedure in Article 66. But what should interest us here a bit more, and and that's how this uh, Irish decision took shape, is the special cooperation mechanism in Article 60. And the way it worked here was that there was a complaint, a complaint filed, I think, in Austria and in Ireland by Max Schrems' organization, Neub. And this was a complaint against Meta, alleging that Meta is violating all sorts of provisions of the GPR. And then uh, for, so I think the complaint was around 2018. It took the Irish DPC quite a while to investigate it. But once they finished their investigation, they prepared a draft decision. 
And then uh, when this happens, when there is a draft decision, especially from the Irish DPA and DPC, sorry, then other uh, national regulators who also have users of Facebook and Instagram in their country, which I guess is all the national regulators, so they can object to the approach taken by the lead authority, in this case, the Irish DPC. And if we have this draft decision to which there are objections, that triggers the cooperation mechanism. And normally the idea in the cooperation mechanism is that the lead authority reaches some sort of an agreement with those objecting uh, concerned authorities and and it takes all the objections into account or or those authorities retract their objections and this way a decision can be finalized without another mechanism. But in this case, there was no such agreement. And this meant that the once the Irish uh, DPC finished their draft, that went to the, to the procedure, the dispute, uh, dispute resolution procedure, where basically within the EDPB mechanism, uh, national authorities get to vote on how the decision should be resolved. At first, there is a they they vote by two thirds majority. But if that doesn't work, then after two months or so, they it go the the level required goes down to simple majority. So in the end, a simple majority of those European authorities can overrule whatever the approach was taken by the lead authority. And so far, as far as far as I know, this happened seven times, and in the lead authority that that was that received this binding decision was the Irish uh, Data Protection Commission. Okay, let me see if I can play that back to you with respect to this particular case because I think it's really fascinating. So, as far as I understand, Noib launched the complaint the day that GDPR went into effect. It was we know that this is a violation. We're gonna whatever day it was, 2018. Yeah. GDPR is now the law of the land. We're gonna file the complaint. Irish DPC took some time, a yes. lot of time five years, four years, they came to like a draft conclusion that said, now we don't think this is a violation. We think that Meta can use a contractual basis for this purpose, for advertising targeting. Every European country has people in its within its borders that use Facebook. And so they got a say and a majority of them disagreed. A majority, or it was a super majority disagreed. So 67% said no, or is that how that works or? I'm not sure we know, but uh, at least a majority. Right. Okay. So anyway, at least a majority disagreed. They went back and forth. Uh, At least a simple majority kept disagreeing. And we got to the point where the EDPB says, okay, well, you can't come to an agreement amongst yourselves. We are going to adopt this case um, and we are going to decide whether or not they violated GDPR and also what the sanction is. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And so once that decision is made, it gets pushed back down to the relevant privacy regulator and they have to enforce it. Yes. I see. So that's kind of the, the journey that, you know, Meadow went on or the Irish DPC went on through this process. The EDPB said, no, we disagree with you, Irish DPC. We've determined that Meta did, in fact, violate GDPR. Here's the sanction that you must impose on them. The Irish DPC received that. They are, you know, obviously Meta said they're appealing. The Irish DPC is going to impose the sanction. Meta is appealing. We'll see what the outcome of that is. But then Meta also said, we think you overstepped EDPB. Can you talk to me about that? So the Irish DPC said 
the, sorry. Yeah. yeah. The, the Irish DPC said, we're going to impose a sanction on Meta. We disagree with it. I mean, this is all in the press release. Uh, we disagree with the sanction, but we're going to impose it. And, but also EDPB, we disagree with your power here. We disagree with your interpretation of what your power is. We think you've overstepped the power granted to you by the GDPR, and we might take some action. Could you talk to me about how the Irish DPC reacted to this? So there were three issues from the Irish DPC's perspective. There is a part of their decision over which there was no disagreement, and that was about certain transparency requirements, violations, and the Irish DPC thought that Meta uh, did violate uh, those rules, uh, but that's in a sense, not the serious part of the decision. Then there is the substantive disagreement between the Irish DPC and uh, uh, the EDPB over contractual necessity. And here the Irish DPC, even in the press release, when they say, yes, we're finding meta, but actually we kind of disagree with our own decision. Right. We are forced to take it. So that's one issue. But there is a third aspect, which is not strictly about contractual necessity but it's about EDPP telling the Irish DPC that they should start a new, broader investigation that the Irish DPC did not, uh, does not want to start. And this is what the Irish DPC says is an overreach, that they say that they are not like a co national court with general supervisory authority over the Irish DPC, that they, they can only coordinate once there, there are some investigations, when, when, once there is a draft decision, but they cannot force a national authority to start an investigation. So in a sense, the disagreement over which the Irish DPC said they are considering going to court is not, strictly speaking, about this, the core issue in that decision. This will probably be down to Meta to challenge, but over uh, this procedural aspect about forcing the Irish DPC to start a new investigation. Got it. Okay, so let me read that back to see if I'm understanding correctly. So as part of this judgment that the EDP handed to the Irish DPC to implement, they also said, by the way, we think that you should undertake a much larger investigation yes. around Meta's right. business practices related to GDPR. Yeah. And what the Irish DPC is pushing back on is not the judgment that the EDP handed down to them in the case of this investigation, which they just sort of accept that they must impose. Yes. But it actually relates to the EDPB's ability to tell any given privacy regulator that they must undertake an investigation. And that's where the Irish DPC says that the EDPB is overstepping. Yes. Although, who knows, maybe if they bring an action for annulment, which is which is the technical name of, of the legal measure they would use against an EDPP decision, maybe then they will broaden the scope of that action to include some substantive issues, because they did tell us they disagree substantively with mm -hmm. the EDPP. So maybe they will do it, or maybe they will simply leave that to meta to litigate. Got it. Okay. Uh, that's probably as clear as it's going to get for like laymen like myself, but that's very helpful. There are a dizzying number of acronyms that must be used in this space. I don't know how you managed to so. manage to maintain your sanity here. I thought ad tech was bad with acronyms, but uh, European privacy is is even worse. And, and so, just just kind of thinking about the the consequences of this or the the repercussions. What 
how should companies that utilize first-party data for ads personalization interpret this decision? How should they adjust their own practices, right? Because to your point, this doesn't prohibit the use. This just says, okay, well, if you want to process data for that purpose, you've got to use a different legal basis from the GDPR. You can't, we don't think you can use contractual basis. You probably have to use a different basis. And then, so what Meta has said, and what, you know, a lot of people are saying kind of privately is that, well, they'll just switch to legitimate interest and that'll be fine, right? Now, my argument back, and again, I'm a layman, I don't know that much about this, I would love to hear your thoughts on on my argument back, is that, well, TikTok tried that, right? TikTok tried to alter their privacy policy such that they were using the legitimate, legitimate interest basis and not the contractual basis, right? To sidestep the consent mechanism, because they have a consent mechanism in Europe. So if you open up TikTok, there's a consent pop-up that says, you know, do you agree to have your data be used for ads personalization or whatever? That exists, right? They wanted to stop doing that. And so what they had proposed to do was to change their privacy policy such that it was using legitimate interests so they wouldn't have to collect consent. And my understanding is the Italian DPA said, no way, if you do that, we're going to challenge it. And then TikTok consulted with the Irish DPC, which is their privacy regulator because they're headquartered in Ireland. And, you know, whatever that conversation took place. And then they said, okay, we're not going to make this change. We're going to stick with what we've got. Can you talk to me about that? What What is the legitimate interest yeah. basis and why might that not be the silver bullet here for any company that's doing this exact same thing? So the legitimate interest basis may seem to be quite attractive because it means that it is lawful for you to process your user's personal data for your own interest. And you have uh, some of the examples that GDPR gives for that are if you need to, for example, check whether it, or prevent fraud uh, on your services or even for direct marketing. Direct marketing is an example for, for legitimate interest that is used by the GDPR itself. So it does seem attractive. The problem w- with this is that the same part of Article 6 that introduces it also provides says uh, that it's allowed except where such interests those legitimate interests are overridden by the interests or fundamental rights and freedoms of the data subject so then you have this difficult uh, legal exercise of balancing whether my interest as a business to do uh, direct marketing it over overrides or is overridden by the user's interest, you know, not to have their privacy restricted. So that's one problem. The other problem is that you cannot use legitimate interests to process special category data under Article 9 of the GDPR. And that's data like uh, data revealing racial or ethnic origin, political opinions, religious or philosophical belief. And if you're Facebook, you may have, you may have this problem that actually you collect so much data that it's very hard for you to say that some of the data you collect may not be revealing those kind of, kind of information. And I guess TikTok is in a similar situation. So for those two reasons, the Italian authorities uh, issued a formal war- warning to TikTok, and, and it does seem like TikTok shelved uh, that idea. And that's just the GDPR. We didn't even mention the privacy directive, which doesn't right. have the notion of legitimate interests, only consent. So TikTok did not go with that plan. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so I wanted I wanted to get to that next. One thing that kind of confused me when I began the, the process of trying to understand the space is Irish DPC is a DPA. It's just yes. a data protection. 
Right. And then then the the Irish DPC is just the national name for that DPA, which is Irish Data Processing or Data Protection Commission. Commission, Right. Okay. Yeah. That's that was confusing to me because people seem to use those two (laughs) acronyms interchangeably and and they are, I guess. But uh, the Irish DPC is just that specific office. So thank you for the segue, because I want to talk about the e-privacy directive. And I kind of want to couch that discussion in a position proposal. And here's my position proposal. And tell me if I'm just way off or if I'm kind of close to target here. My sense is that we are trending to a point where through the GDPR and e-privacy directive decisions, and we'll get to what some of those have been, some recent examples uh, in a second, but through those GDPR and e-privacy directive decisions, we are trending to a situation in which only consent Our consent is the only viable mechanism for processing data. We probably won't see these other GDPR legal bases be approved for personalized advertising, for ads personalization, ads targeting, whatever you want to call it. Like These companies are probably going to have to resort to consent. What do you think of that? How would you respond to that? So I, I think that it certainly does look like businesses are being pushed towards consent, at least for the kind of data processing that authorities perceive as having significant privacy impact and profiling or behavioral advertising is seen as having the significant impact as uh, so it's not like just collecting a mailing list for you know direct uh, direct marketing or direct emailing or snail mail but the problem with consent is that it's really not easy and and you mentioned already this one aspect that consent has to be informed and and how to, uh, so we have an issue of how to find the balance between providing too much technical detail so that you, and then a user wouldn't understand it because it's too technical. And on the other hand, you can be too general and simplify too much so that a user will not be adequately informed. So informed consent is, is tricky, but that's, I don't even think that's the biggest issue. I think that the, what, what could be the biggest issue, for example, for Meta is, is this problem of bundling consent. And this comes from Article 7.4 GDPR, which says that there is a presumption that if a user has to give consent to data processing to access some service, and when the service provider cannot rely on contractual necessity, then this consent is not freely given and thus not valid. So the, the, here the problem is the, this bundling issue. If you tell your users, if you want to use our service, you have to consent. And uh, normally, if there is an issue of true necessity, then you wouldn't need to ask the user for consent because then you say, well, the processing will be based on, on the contract between us. And that's what Meta tried to do. But, but Article 7.4 says that, well, but if you then cannot rely on contractual necessity, then there is at least a presumption that you cannot ask for consent if you make consent a condition uh, of accessing the service. So if Facebook says, you have to consent to this kind of data processing or we will delete your account or you cannot open an account. Right. And then in this specific context, when we're talking about personalized ads, it is, well, we need personalized ads to run the service. And so if you don't consent, we just can't offer the service to you. That's what you're saying. They can't do that. They can't bundle these things together such that, and you talked about this in your article, that it's take it or leave it. Like you've got to give them an off-ramp for that specific feature for which they are consenting. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we can try to look at it from, from Meta's perspective. So the EDPB tells them that they cannot rely on contractual necessity for data processing for personalized advertising because, at least according to EDPB, it is theoretically possible to run a social mm-hmm. media business without personalized advertising. 
By the way, they provide no evidence for that, but set aside that aside. Let's also set aside the issue of legitimate interests. So in this case, we are pretty much left with consent. Cannot use legitimate interests, cannot use contractual uh, necessity. So here, Article 7.4 makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to use consent as a condition of access to a service. So what, what seems to be a conclusion? So that Facebook may need to offer an identical service without personalized advertising, or perhaps any personalization, to any user who would like to refuse to consent. And then you can ask further questions. So can Facebook charge users for access to that service? And the tricky issue here, and we go back to consent, is that if users have to pay for an alternative, that could mean that their consent, um, so that they may be forced to consent to the free service because they cannot afford to pay for the personalization free option. Uh, right. Option C. So they may be with between a rock and a hard place that if you tell users to pay, this may be forcing them to consent. And if you if it forces them to consent to the personalized version, then this consent is not valid. And that's uh, that's illegal. And of course, we, we all know that Meta has always been opposed to the idea of having a paid subscription option. And so forcing them to do it would be really tantamount to telling Meta that the regulators know better how to run their business. But that's that's also an issue. Right. So there's so much to unpack there. So, so it's funny because like there are things in, you know, working, having worked in this space for my whole career, right? Uh, mobile apps, you know, digital ads. There are things that I just know to be true, right? And, you know, this, the, the, I don't know these through rigorous scientific interrogation. I know them just through osmosis from having seen a lot and observed a lot. And I know that you cannot charge for a social media app. That will not be successful. If you try to charge for it, it will not be successful. You can't even make it meaningfully difficult to onboard. Look at Mastodon. It will not work. It has to be very simple to onboard and it has to be free. The more the every half a second of friction that you add to the onboarding process, but especially if that friction is related to like someone pulling out their wallet, just dramatically reduces retention. And so I know that to be true. I can't prove that, but I just know it to be true, right? So that's why they've never experimented with a paid product. Now, what you're saying, if I'm reading this back correctly, is if they said, okay, well, look, we'll provide you with the option. We've got to pay for our servers, right? We've got to pay for our engineers. We've got to make some money here. If we go purely contextual, we're not going to make any money. Yeah. Um, so we'll give you the option, user. Either you go free product with ads personalization or you pay. You're saying that that would be challenged. That would be saying, well, that's not, that's consent under duress. That's consent under some alternative where money ex- is exchanged and that's not real consent. You're saying that that would probably be challenged. So that's not how I would, I would interpret the GDPR, but I'm highly confident that the same authorities, uh, domestic authorities and that objected to Irish DPC's uh, approach, they will also take that route. And they will say, well, it's not real consent because here you're not choosing between two free options. So they are not equivalent choices right. for the user. They uh, Here, one option is free and one option is paid. So the consent for uh, the consent for the free option is thus not uh, not fully uh, free and freely given and, and thus invalid. Right. OK, so I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I'll try to yeah. I'll try to refrain from I'll just try to summarize and have you tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Uh, I, I know lawyers are very particular <laughs> about, about semantics. Okay, so it sounds like to me, my interpretation of what I'm hearing is that that would likely be challenged. Yes. Okay. Now, 
what if Meta said, you know, if you look at Europe as a share of Meta's revenues, and then you try to back, because the UK is not in the EU. And so if you look at Meta's share of what they call Europe revenue, and then you look at, you know, like the IAB's breakdown of revenue within geographic Europe, 50% of it's UK, right? That's what the IAB says. And so the other 50% is continental Europe. What if Facebook said, look, the juice is not worth the squeeze here. We're going to keep our app as it is in the UK. And of that line item on our quarterly earnings that says Europe, we know that about half of that's UK. So that's probably fine. The other half is continental Europe. We're just going to only make a paid app in Europe. And we know that, you know, our revenue there is going to decrease substantially, but maybe we're just willing to take that risk or we're, we're willing to absorb that loss because, hey, we, we sure are paying a lot of fines. And then, you know, they offered the sort of free app with personalized advertising baked in all over the rest of the world. Could that be challenged? Because you're saying, well, no, you're not giving us the same app. You're, you're, you're disadvantaging this geographic territory relative to the other geographic territories by giving us an inferior app just so you don't have to comply with our privacy laws. We're not going to allow you to do that. Could that be challenged? Well, but uh, I'm assuming that in, in this scenario, they actually do comply with the laws in the sense that they remove remove uh, personalization behavioral advertising and then they try to recover it by subscription. Right. So let, let's say that they create like Facebook EU, right? And there's literally no personalization whatsoever. Yes. Your feed is all chronological. There are no ads, but you have to subscribe. So I'm not sure it would be a problem under, under privacy law. You could, you know, if some very creative uh, regulators maybe will then think about antitrust issues and try to make a case that, well, then you're price gouging. So yeah. depending on like what, what's uh, what's the price set for that. But yes, it could address the price, just like uh, going to con contextual advertising. So then you could say, okay, let's, so we'll have a, you know, less revenue, but, uh, but then you'll try to do it just with contextual advertising. Yeah, well, I mean, I think people look at contextual advertising as some kind of like panacea to all sort of like privacy concerns, yes. but contextual advertising only works when there's context. Yes. Like what's the context of my <laughs> Facebook newsfeed, right? I mean, if I'm on ESPN.com, there's probably, you can probably infer a few things about me that might be like commercially actionable. Um, if I'm on, you know, weather.com, you can't. So like, and then if I'm on the Facebook you know, newsfeed, you really can't. So contextual advertising, my, se my sense is probably just doesn't work Yes. For that product where, it, you know, the, the revenue is not appealing. You know, I worry. So so no one really knows for sure what any business should do, including Meta especially. But one way to look at the current situation is that at least some European authorities, they really are not interested. They don't care to find a way for personalized advertising or even ad supported business models to be done lawfully. Their mm -hmm. approach seems to be. Here are all the conditions you need to satisfy to do the advertising lawfully. And if it yeah. is impossible to satisfy them, tough luck. Find a different right. business model. Right. I don't want to speak for too wide of a, a group here, but I would say that that's, that's probably the prevailing sentiment amongst digital advertising operators or even just whatever publishers in, yes. in the United States. It's, it's that there's no real compromise possible here it's it's probably we're probably not going to converge around some mutually agreeable solution so 
Of course, there is, as we noticed in, in this Irish case, there is no unanimity. So some countries, uh, some authorities in some countries take a slightly more maximalist interpretation of the GDPR. Some uh, some take a different view. So perhaps the political process can still, you know, result uh, and in a different result. But the current momentum seems to be going in this direction, as as uh, as we just said. Right. That's kind of depressing, but uh, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, so, okay. Um, I've written a couple articles recently about the Canil, and they've had a couple of really interesting decisions, and and we can get to those, but. Could you just maybe talk to me about what the Canil is and what its jurisdiction is? Because that seems kind of fuzzy. So Canil is another DPA, like the Irish Data Protection uh, Commission. But one reason why we are talking about Canil right now is that, like in several other EU countries and former EU countries like the UK, the Data Protection Authority was given, in, in a sense, double authorities under the GDPR and under domestic law, which implements an old uh, or relatively old e-privacy directive. So authorities like the uh, CANIL and like the UK Information Commissioner's Office, they can wear two hats and enforce those two different jurisdictions. Right. Talk to me about the jurisdictional difference between the e-privacy directive and the GDPR. So GDPR, EU level privacy legislation, e-privacy directive is a directive, right? It's not legislation. Yes. It's it's saying, hey, you should, you, EU block, you, 27 EU member country, you should implement this law, but you need to implement it, you know, in a way that makes sense for your own uh, sort of domestic sensibilities. Can you talk to me about the difference between yeah. those two concepts uh, you know, a, an EU-level law and a directive, and then also talk to me about the difference between the GDPR and the e-privacy directive. So the EU Law 101 on this is that regulations and directives are different because regulations, they bind member states immediately. When, and they are, they are statutes which are ready-made once, uh, once they are enacted. Whereas when you have a directive, a directive sort of sets a, almost like a goal in the di in a distance that member states are still bound to reach, but they do so by adopting special national statutes. So with the, with the regulation, you don't get national laws separately from it. The regulation is directly applicable, as we say. With a directive, you get those separate national laws. And the thing about directives is that those national laws, usually there is a bit of a leeway for various countries, how they will so achieve those uh, goals of a directive. And for example, one of those uh, differences that, uh, that uh, can be uh, yeah, among EU member states is that whether they will have one authority, both for GDPR and e-privacy, or separate authorities. So uh, France and, and the UK, they, they went with one authority approach. Got it. So that's, that's helpful. I think, talk to me a little bit about that leeway, though, because I think that's there's probably some explanatory power there when you think about these specific cases that I'm going to, that yeah. we'll, we'll talk about in a second. So one problem with, with that leeway is that because CNIL, the French authority, has has its domestic law, the way they use it is that they say that, oh, we have that separate authority from the GPR, which means that based on that authority, we can 
act completely outside of this one-stop shop process for uh, which uh, which is required for the GDPR, but not for the e-privacy directive, right? So the e-privacy directive does not have this idea that because Meta Ireland is domiciled in Ireland, that they have this sole interlocutor main authority to talk to in Ireland. Under the e-privacy directive, you have 27 national laws, and each of those laws is enforced by the domestic authority. And I think it may be fair to say that the French Data Protection Authority and decided to be very creative and aggressive in using that uh, legal basis instead of GDPR. And a cynical interpretation of it is that they are simply trying to uh, sidestep that uh, that limitation to recover some authority they lost by the one-stop shop principle and by the fact that most big techs are domiciled in Ireland. Right. Okay. That's And that's great because that's a great segue into the first case I want to talk about. So the Canil sanctioned Apple. Yes. And it's a little bit ironic because <laughs> Apple rolled out ATT. Yes. And uh, it rolled it out with iOS version 14.5 mm-hmm. and it sort of slow rolled it, right? So usually what Apple does is when they launch a big new feature release, they'll push it out, kind of see how they'll, they'll make it available. Yeah. And people will sort of, you know, of their own volition go and download it, you know, kind of early adopters will go and download it and they'll up, update their iPhone and they'll use it. And then Apple can kind of test, you know, as a tech test almost, whether like this is, there's any breaking bugs that they didn't catch or whatever. And after some usually, you know, moderate amount of time, like a week, they'll say, okay, this looks pretty stable. And what they'll do is they'll send a push notification to everyone's to everyone else's phone and say, hey, this new version's ready for release. And so what you can track is the upgrade you know, graphs, basically, you know, adoption graphs of people that have upgraded to the newest version. And and usually it's like this kind of like very low level of adoption growth. And then there's an inflection up and it's just kind of like this, this sort of like vertical graph that goes way up because everyone gets the push notification down. So what they did with 14.5 is they waited much longer. Right. And then they made some changes uh, and then they, they launched 14.6. Right. And the 14.6, they let it kind of whatever ruminate. And then they pushed the notification and then the, the adoption curve inflected and, and, and the majority of people had it in, in very short order, right? And that was right around WWDC uh, 2021. So it was like late June. Okay, so what the CNIL said was, and this was not really made public until recently, but at the time, you know, what the CNIL said was, hey, look, Apple, you are doing ads personalization yeah. and you are using a bunch of identifiers that these users have not consented to have access by you. And you're using those identifiers to, to collect data from these users and to build profiles of them and to target ads to them in your own ad platform, which is Apple Search Ads, which is the placements are within the App Store and the Apple News and the Apple Stocks. And what Apple said was, hey, Camille, mind your own business. If, if we're headquartered in Ireland, you can't yeah. intervene here. If this is a GDPR issue, have the, have the Irish DPC investigated. But you know, we have no responsibility to sort of explain this to you. And uh, this is not a, a French national issue. If it's a GDPR issue, then we'll go through the one-stop shop provision and we'll talk to the Irish DPC. And the, and the Canil said, no, because you have two companies based in France. You've got Apple Retail and, and some other, uh, you know, kind of domestic company. Now, Apple Retail sells, they run Apple stores, right? It's the, you know, you go in there and you buy an iPhone. But then the other company was like uh, the the local branch that managed the ASA, the App, Apple Search Ads, like support, 
right? And they said, you've got a domestic entity here. And so therefore we can, we can sort of interrogate your practices here under the French Data Privacy Act. And they did. And they find them. And I think it was like 8 million euros, which to Apple is not a lot of money. But but nonetheless, they were able to sort of make the case that, no, this isn't a GDPR issue. We don't have to go through the one-stop shop provision. We can litigate this by French domestic privacy law. And we do. And we find you whatever. We've found that you're in violation. Can you just talk to me about that? Let me know if I got anything wrong. And then that I find very, very interesting that they were able to push back on this idea that, no, this is a French domestic issue. Yes, we can investigate it here based on French law. Yes. So there are some circumstances under the GDPR when you can have a domestic non-Irish authority to investigate. And that's what happened with TikTok and the Italian authority. They use this urgency procedure. But that was under the GDPR. What happened, what what Canil does, uh, and that seems to be their MO recently, is they just don't use the GDPR. They use their the same their national uh, data uh, protection law, which implements the e-privacy directive. And and there is this provision in the, and uh, so as many of your listeners will probably know, the, it's the cookie law. So that's the real reason why we have uh, consent banners, not, not the GPR, but really the e-privacy directive. But there is one other, so the, that feature of the e-privacy directive is in its article 5.3, which says that when, whenever you want to store or gain access to any information on a user device, you need to inform the user and give them an opportunity to refuse to uh, which basically means consent, right? So that's the basis that Canil is using under the e-privacy directive as implemented in, in French law, not the GDPR. Right, and I think there's something important to underscore there. There's two things, right? So one is... I said, you know, at the outset, I said it was ironic because it was Apple. Apple has significantly disrupted the digital advertising space with ATT, right? And then the Canil found, well, you're not compliant with the privacy directive. So I think with the, the interesting outcome of that was Apple implemented the consent dialogue after this happened. My sense is my, I would conclude from that, that they were never going to do that had no one pushed back on it, right? So that Apple, and, and this is just my opinion, right? I'm not... Yeah. I'm not trying to sort of uh, indicate, you know, uh, involve you in this, but my sense is that Apple only decided to implement that consent pop-up, which by the way, says ads personalization. It's very different from the ATT pop-up, but it says ads personalization. um, And they get a lot more sort of real estate to use in sort of making the case than you do with the ATT pop-up. But nonetheless, they wouldn't have done that had had this not been, you know, sort of pushed back on right, is my belief. But I think, you know, the other interesting thing here, the other, at least the other takeaway is that, well, let me say there's two more. One is that if you're complying with ATT, that doesn't mean you're complying with the privacy directive. Correct. Right? The ATT is a platform policy. It's not a law. The privacy directive is not a law either. It's directive, but it's transposed into law across the EU. And you might not just being compliant with ATT is necessary, but not sufficient for being compliant with the e-privacy directive. But the other insight I would parse from this, which I think is is important, but I would like to get your thoughts on it because I might be misinterpreting it, is that there is a liability inherent with complying with the e-privacy directive at the EU state level. And you might say, okay, well, I might not be compliant with the e-privacy directive as transposed into French law because the French are being very litigious with this. 
but I might have less liability in Germany and I might have almost no liability or I have some liability, but not very much liability in Spain. And, and so I might make business decisions on that basis. I might say, okay, well, I understand that what I'm doing is probably not compliant with the e-privacy directive, but as transposed into national law around across the EU, but only some of these countries are actually going to pursue that. And so maybe I will launch a different version or not or not have a version available at all in these some of these countries, depending on the risk. Now, for Apple, 8 million euros, they probably don't care that much. But for Voodoo, they might or some other company, they might. And that might actually convince a company to just simply because it's very easy with the App Store. I just click a box. I click a box and my app is available in your country. That's all I have to do. So if I think the liability is potentially too material to justify having the app live there. I just unclick the box, right? Is that something that could happen or is there, would that violate some kind of like, you know, EU level accessibility law? I'm not sure. I think you may have enough uh, freedom to to choose which countries to operate. And also there is that risk and uh, which may support that kind of decision uh, because if you implement, so if you go along with the interpretation of, for example, what consent under Article 5.3 of the e-privacy directive, what it requires, and if you go uh, with the interpretation adopted by the French regulator, and if you do it for one country, then your position versus vis-a-vis all other regulators is weaker because then they can say, well, you did that for the French market, why wouldn't you do that here, right? So that may be one reason also to go for that sort of semi-nuclear option. So, so I'm, I'm not observing the market closely enough to say whether anyone did that. You know, country by country, I don't think so. But in the sort of early days of GDPR, you just had, yeah. you know, especially, especially a lot of like local newspapers in the United States. You said, no, oh, if, yeah. you're in Europe, if you're in Europe, we're not going to allow you to access it. We can't, yeah, that's true. We can't uh, bear that liability. Like that would kill us. Like the, whatever, the Little Rock... Yeah. observer, <laughs> probably, you know, if the, the, the 10 readers they get from the EU every day are probably not worth the, yeah. the risk, right? Now, obviously, the risk scales with the size of the potential sanction based on the size of the user base in Europe. I don't think anybody's going to go after the Little Rock observer. I don't even, you know, but, but nonetheless, you get, I think you get my point. But going back to the rationale of the one-stop shop that we mentioned at, at the beginning of our conversation, I, I think this is a perfect example. And it is perceived as something as a bad situation in EU law because it does go against this idea that EU law is meant to provide harmonization and provide a single market where you can operate without regulatory borders between countries, right? So there are some ideas to change the situation when the e-privacy directive is, is finally going to be replaced with its uh, successor. Right. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about the e-privacy regulation. What what will that change? So the e-privacy regulation was, in a sense, a sister idea to the GDPR. And, and I think the original idea was that they were going to be enacted at the same time. That didn't happen. And it's really hard to tell what exactly is the current stage of the e-privacy directive, sorry, e-privacy regulation. But But the point is that it would and one of the ideas for it was to have similar enforcement mechanisms as the GPR. So going from this fragmented 27 countries with slightly different rules and, and ideas about enforcement scheme, like we have now under the e-privacy directive, in towards something like one-stop shop in the GPR. And 
What I do know is that there is disagreement between the various legislators. So the, so the European Commission seems to be in favor of the GDPR approach for it, but the uh, governments of uh, various member states adopted a their own negotiating position, which would actually preserve the fragmented system of enforcement. So even if the e-privacy regulation is adopted, there is no guarantee that it will bring that improvement in terms of enforcement. Right. So it's it's kind of, if I would liken it to a situation in the United States, it's kind of like California vis-a-vis federal privacy law, right? Like they want to maintain their agency with the CCPA, CPRA, and they don't want to give that up to the federal government. Is that roughly similar? Is that an okay comparison? I think so. I, I don't know which countries are the strongest voices behind this uh, sort of fragmented enforcement approach, but I would be very surprised if uh, France is not among them. Right. So one question I have for you is, is there like a double jeopardy clause here? So because that would be my concern, right? So like, okay, France sanctioned me based on national French law transposed from the e-privacy director. Oh, and by the way, so did Spain. And so did Germany. Is there a double jeopardy protection here or could I just get fined by every EU state for an infraction? That's a good question. But the problem is that technically, because it is national law, so each state fines you for what you did in that state. So it's also not criminal law. So the general principle of double jeopardy may may not apply. But technically, these are separate infractions, right? Infractions. So, so yes, I I think uh, you are at risk of of, uh, being fined for the same thing many times over. Okay, got it. And then, so I guess that begs the, raises the question, why is France the one, you know, at the vanguard of this? Why not Spain? Why not, whatever, uh, Germany? Why is it France? Why is it the Canal that is this active? Because if you look at the number of cases yeah. that they've litigated, it's, it's quite, a, quite a lot. That is true. There are some active regulators in Germany, but it does seem that the French uh, national regulator Canal is particularly aggressive. So I don't want to speculate about the French policy choices. Uh, It could be a cultural thing, uh, partially it could be. There could be, I suspect, a bit of uh, almost nationalist issue or at least European sovereigntist issue because many of those countries which are being prosecuted by Canil are American companies. So I think this is not entirely without influence uh, on motive, uh, sort of the, the motivations behind it. But I think it's it's also tempting to note that the, the same French government, although Canil is an independent authority, but Canil takes a very maximalist interpretation of privacy law, whereas the French government is known for taking a very minimalist interpretation of, of the GDPR and, and generally EU privacy law when it comes to any restrictions on governmental data processing. And to the extent that they keep litigating and losing cases before the European courts about their law enforcement and intelligence uh, data processing, which I think is a pretty interesting juxtaposition, right? Both the strongest ad enforcing against uh, tech companies, but also the most keen on large-scale data processing, but, uh, but by the government. And according to the EU courts, even to cross the boundaries of EU law to do so. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, don't get me started. I mean, that's, (laughs) what drives me up the wall is when you see kind of so-called always self-appointed disinfo experts or missing, you know, saying, 
We need to have access to all the data that Facebook has so we can prevent Cambridge Analytica from ever happening again. It's like, well, how do you think Cambridge Analytica happened? It didn't happen. It wasn't some like, you know, rogue hacker group in North Korea. It was a researcher. Yes. Right. So, I mean, I don't I don't buy that argument that researchers can never want to uh, be motivated by money or whatever. I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan. Any chance of that? I do watch uh, The Simpsons from time to time. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes was uh, so Sideshow Bob infamously tried to murder Bart a couple times and uh, he went to prison and he had die Bart die written on his chest. And the parole board said, well, you know, we don't believe you when you say that you're not going to try to murder Bart again because you've got die, Bart, die written on your chest. He said, oh, no, that's German for the Bart, the and and the parole board says, well, no one who speaks German can be an evil man. (laughs) And it's like no one who's an academic could have an ulterior motive with this data. Right. Um, Anyway. So it's not our main topic for today, but I think it's worth mentioning the new DMA and DSA uh, regulations, uh, which also impose some data access requirements, uh, for example, creating this new ad database, uh, which is meant to be accessible through APIs Mm -hmm. for everyone. So it's quite interesting how at the same time, so with one hand, EU law uh, demands more privacy protections, but, but with another, it looks like it may be undermining that, which is potentially a somewhat schizophrenic situation. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have you back to talk about the DMA and the DSA. That's obviously like another hour and a half, (laughs) but uh, we've got our hands full here. Because you made a point, which I think I would have been fully onboarded with until recently, which is that maybe there's some, and I don't want to put too fine a point on this because I don't don't know whether this is a motivation or not, but maybe part of the motivation for pursuing these cases was that, look, these are American companies and, you you know, you could sort of interpret a number of reasons for why a national privacy regulator would want to very, very aggressively enforce their laws, right, against American companies. But, and I think up until whatever, six months ago, I would have said, yeah, that that probably is explanatory here. But they also sanctioned Voodoo Games. Voodoo Games was sanctioned by the Canal. Voodoo Games is a French company. And they fined them millions of euros. And they said that, kind of similar to the Apple case, they said, look, you're collecting the IDFV. So the IDFA, so I mean, I think most of the listeners are familiar with ATT, but what ATT does is it exposes this pop-up, this consent prompt to users when they open an app. It, it only does it one time, but it says, you know, do you agree to have this app track your behavior across, you know, within this app and across third-party apps and websites or something like that? And the user says yes or no. And if the user says no, then what happens is the policy is, is in effect and the policy covers more than just the IDFA, the policy covers any kind of identifier that could be used and transmitted to a third party for the purposes of ads tracking. It says you can't do that. But the sort of concrete result of the user opting out is the IDFA gets set to all zeros, right? So it's effectively useless. It's the IDFA is set to zeros. And what Apple made available, though, to developers was when the IDFA is zeroed out because the user opted out of tracking, they said no to the ATT prompt, is the IDFV. So the ID for vendors, the IDFA is the ID for advertisers. The IDFV is ID for vendors. And what that is, is it's a publisher-specific device identifier, right? So it's unique to that publisher for that device, but it would be different for a different publisher for that device, right? So Voodoo Games operates a number of games. They publish very many games. And any user that plays multiple of those games, that IDFV is the same whenever they play the game. And so that way, Voodoo could say, okay, well, this user, Eric, is playing this game and this game because I've seen that IDFV in both games, right? And so they know that that's me playing multiple games, right? 
And Apple made that available in the case of ATT opt-out because they said, okay, well, that'd be difficult to stitch together. Like if you sent that off to a third party, they can't do a whole lot with it. Now it's, it's possible that they could, but it would take a really concerted effort and probably a lot of cooperation across third parties that are not likely to want to cooperate. So that's probably privacy safe. So what McNeil said was, well, and, and again, going back to the idea of you're not necessarily compliant with the privacy directive just because you're compliant with ATT, they said, well, we don't care. ATT is platform policy. We say the French Data Privacy Protection Act says you may not access, read, what was it? Read data from a terminal, I think, if the unless the users consented and they didn't consent. The idea fee, we don't care that Apple says that's privacy safe. We don't say it's safe. French law is you can't read this data from the terminal without their consent and you didn't ask for consent. And so we're going to fine you. Talk to you about that because I think that was interesting for you know a number of reasons. One, it's a French company, right? I thought that was interesting. Maybe it's, maybe it's less interesting than I think it is. Yeah. The other thing is the motive here, which Voodoo said, was look, we're doing this to be protective of the user privacy. Like there's a bunch of other stuff we could be doing, right? But we're not. We're using the IDFV because that's privacy protective. And the, the French court said, yeah, fine, but it's not compliant with the law. We're still talking about this Article 5.3 of the e-privacy directive. And it's all, it's interesting how closely it tracks some of the GDPR discussions, for example, in, in Irish meta cases, because this rule does say if you want to store or access any information on the user device, well, you need to give the user uh, an opportunity to refuse. So inform and uh, write, give right to refuse. But... There is an exception. So, and the exception says, this shall not prevent any technical storage or access for the sole purpose of carrying out, facilitating the transmission of communication or as strictly necessary in order to provide an information society service explicitly requested by the subscriber or user. So this last part, it really looks like the contractual necessity consideration. And in a sense, I think you could have very similar legal debates about whether, for example, what Voodoo Games was doing, whether that was actually necessary for them to be able to provide that service because of, they may be funded at least partially by advertising. So it's really a very, at least to me, it seems like a very similar conversation. But the problem is that uh, even under the GDPR, it went the way, well, let's wait for the courts, but saying that, no, you cannot use contractual necessity for this reason, then perhaps the e-privacy directive could be interpreted in the same way. But if the courts go, it it is at least possible that the courts could interpret it otherwise. So to say, no, advertising is part of the deal. It's part of the contract. It's necessary for provision of the service because it's an economic necessity, not just a technical necessity. And for that reason, then you don't, you may not require this consent, specific consent for storage or retrieval of information from user device. So yes, I think that that's worth noting, but I'm not surprised that the French authority will would take the same view on this as they take on contractual necessity and say, no, you have to have specific consent. Yeah, and, and that's that's an, you made that same point in, in your article, right, about the economic necessity, and that's not really being considered when no. these are being litigated. Okay, I wanted to get to... One more big topic, transatlantic data flows. I think this is something that probably most people are like superficially aware of. You see the headlines every once in a while, but the details are staggering uh, or, you know, there's just a lot there. Can you just kind of briefly give a background of that tension, that issue, 
and then maybe give us your take on how you think it'll be resolved. So under the GDPR, transferring personal data outside of the EU is only allowed if, if certain conditions are met and broadly those conditions deal with uh, whether the place, the jurisdiction to which data is meant to be transferred protects privacy sufficiently. And uh, similar persons involved as in the meta investigation that is Max Schrems. He is probably most famous for litigating this issue twice now and probably soon the third time. And so far twice, he managed to convince the European courts, the Court of Justice, to say that the scheme under which, under EU law, the United States were recognized as a safe jurisdiction for data privacy, that this scheme was not, uh, was invalid under EU. So that first happened in Schrems 1 and more recently under Schrems 2. So now there are some ways around this because those two decisions uh, dealt with an overarching scheme called previously the Privacy Shield, under which it was an agreement and under which the uh, European Commission and the, the US government, they, they agreed that the US will make some representations about protecting Europeans' data. And based on that, no, if I was an EU or US business transferring data between the two jurisdictions, I didn't need to make my own individual assessments whether this is fine for me to do. Since the uh, Schrems 2 decision, is, since the previous decision was uh, invalidated, now we have some ways around the problem, the main of which is known as SCCs, the Standard Contractual Clauses. And the SCCs are a scheme where you, as a business, individually have to assess legal risks to your user's data from that data being transferred to the US and uh, the SCCs is what uh, Meta and, uh, and all other major providers are relying for transferring user data. And um, what happened in several Google Analytics cases and in an um, sort of pending Meta data transfers case, it looks uh, the domestic uh, data protection authorities started to take a very hard line about how the theoretical possibility of personal data being accessed by U.S. intelligence authorities undermines any the use of any of those SCCs. So because it is possible that under U.S. law, the information, the personal data of a European will in the U.S. be accessed by the authorities without, as some argue, sufficient due process, this means that it would be unlawful for a company like Meta to transfer the data of Europeans to the U.S. And I think it, uh, last year, Meta even made an announcement in their um, SEC filing saying that uh, this case, uh, this pending case, is such a risk that if it goes uh, so one way, they may need to stop providing services in, in Europe. So they disclosed that as a significant business risk in an SEC filing. So that decision is expected in April. And everyone's waiting for a different decision, this time from the European Commission, creating a new uh, so-called adequacy framework. So privacy shield, you could say three, that will make this meta decision in a sense uh, moot. So even if uh, the data protection authorities were going to find that uh, no meta is violating EU law by transferring personal data to the US, 
this will become moot once EU law again allows everyone to transfer personal data to the US. So we're very eagerly awaiting for the European Commission to formally adopt a draft adequacy decision that they already announced. So it's expected around, hard to tell, June maybe. Right. So if I understand correctly, there there was some news recently, right? Like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And there's an issue around the timing because this is being attacked kind of from two different directions where it's being handled. So there's the, the DPAs, the Association of DPAs or whatever, and then the EC. And the DPAs are, once they go into the process, they have like some fixed amount of time, and then, but, but the EC might take longer. And so the, the DPAs could say, well, no, this is not legal before the EC proposes like the third solution. And then in that interim period, there would be like a gray zone or something where it's not just meta, right? Like this would, right. I mean, this would apply to every American everyone. company. Yeah. Google, meta, everyone. Can you talk about that, I mean, the, the timing? The decision itself would only have legal effects in respect to one company, obviously, but then everyone would be at risk of very, of identical or very similar enforcement proceedings. Right. Mikolai, this was just, this was so informative. I've really been looking forward to this call and uh, it absolutely lived up to expectations. I have so many more questions, but I've already sort of eaten up an hour and a half of your day. I will, you know, ask, how can people connect with you? How can they read your writing? How can they follow you? Where do you live on the internet? So I think it's best to follow me on Twitter and it will be probably best if, if you just uh, post a link in show notes to my handle because my handle is my initial and then my surname, which is very difficult. But uh, but yes, but so, so Twitter is uh, best. Got it. And just one kind of like last quick question. So you know, I feel like I have a superficial grasp on these topics and I've probably invested, I don't know, 20, 30 hours into this research. Most people don't have that kind of time to commit to this. What do you do? What do you do if, you know, you're working at an American company, you're based in the US and and you want to make sure you're compliant with this myriad EU privacy law? What do you do? You just hire a law firm or you hire like a full-time person to manage this? I'm afraid, I mean, of course, it depends on how, how big your operation is, but, uh, but it's it may be very difficult to avoid some expensive lawyers, unfortunately, which is one of the sad aspects of the situation because those costs can adapt very quickly. But I'm, I'm not sure there is a, there is any other uh, responsible advice I could give than just get a good lawyer. Right. Fair enough. It's a uh, wise words for most situations. Uh, Miguel, I very much appreciate your time. Thanks very much for walking through these topics with, uh, with me and, and with the audience. Take care. Thank you.